welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Let us hear the Word of God together on a Christmas Eve morning. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's mighty word. May we see his mighty son in it. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Thank you for for honoring his word with me this morning. Well, we're in, in a series, as you probably have been with us. We've entitled The Light of the World, and uh, I chose, to me, the greatest Christmas prophecy, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, to uh, populate our preaching this, these four weeks of Advent. It's a, it's a great text that uh, combines four different names that describe one unique person. You notice that the text's there, the text there says, his name, singular, speaking about Messiah, Jesus, shall be called, and then it gives you these four beautiful compound names, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace, names that not only defy full explanation, but they span history in terms of how he's going to live those out. But, so we've been studying the names of our Lord, and uh, uh, of course, names mean different things in different cultures. You probably have experienced that if you've done any travel. Um, names in our culture have become trivialized, unfortunately. Uh, they used to mean a lot more in terms of how you were named in relationship to your family or your, or your history. Or, but now we just we, we create names in American society to tell people or places or things apart, and mostly when it comes to naming people, Uh, The trend now is to make a child's name as unique as you possibly can. Uh, A while back, there was a family in Beaumont, Texas that took this a little overboard. As far as as I know, the longest name to appear on a birth certificate in the United States is this name. Roshandia Telenicia Unaveshek Koyanis Kwatsiuth. Williams. (laughs) Williams. <laughs> it's a girl, by the way. <laughs> I don't know how you could have told it. She was born September 12, 1984, to a Mr. and Mrs. James Williams <laughs> of Beaumont, Texas. There's uh, 49 letters in her first name. But three weeks later, Mr. Williams went back to the courthouse in Beaumont and he filed an amendment that expanded his daughter's first name to 1,019 letters, and he added 36 letters to the poor girl's middle name. 
I have no doubt that in 2002, on September 13th, the moment she turned 18, she went back to that courthouse and probably changed her name to Sue or something. (laughs) I mean, goodness. That's different. Yeah, we, we, we go out of our way to make names just make a person different. Well, in the Old Testament times, that was, uh, names were, were, were taken a lot more seriously than that. Uh, they, were, they stood for a person's glory in terms of either what you give out their life or maybe on certain occasions in the Old Testament, you were given that name from a vision, by a vision from God, and, and you were told specifically to name a child in a certain way because of God's plan for their life. But Old Testament names were given, vision or not, to, to, as a promise or as a hope, as a prediction of the life that would, would be led by that person. And many times they were, they were positive names. Uh, David meant beloved, and he certainly became beloved of God. Abraham, given a name given uh, by God, father of a multitude, that certainly has turned out to be true. Other names were given, uh, and the parents didn't even quite know at the time why they were giving them, but they turned out to be badly prophetic. Jacob meant trickster. That didn't turn out well for that family history. Goliath meant splendor or power, and yeah, he lived into that. They often defined character. Now, when you get to the names of the Messiah here, they define his character and they explain his greatness. There's four compound names. Each of these names in our English language has a modifier. Counselor is modified by wonderful God, by mighty, Father by everlasting, and, and peace by the Prince of. And, and so we know that they're, they're defining powerful impacts that the coming Messiah, whom Isaiah promised would enter the world, would have on the world. And One author has said it this way, each name forms a different window through which to view the Son of God who became the Son of Man. These four names shape our understanding of who God's Messiah is, helping us develop a personal relationship with him and showing us where to find him in our moments of need, end quote. And I might add, there is no individual in human history who has ever lived into these names and will live into these names other than Jesus of Nazareth. There are no other takers. So I want to go through the remaining names with you. We've already talked about this Jesus who would come into history, would be a wonderful counselor, and we know he was the wisest of men and teachers, and he also, along with the Father and the Spirit, created the wisest plan to ever touch universal history. That's the plan of salvation, this wonderful counselor. We've seen also that he is the mighty God, that he is uh, the, the, the second person of the Trinity, a time-arcing Savior who is going to demonstrate his power for all time and already has when he entered the planet in a miraculous way. He is also called the Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace, and I'm going to switch these in terms of how I'm going to approach them. I'm going to talk about Prince of Peace this morning. Simply put, I was in a preacher's dilemma. I needed more time for that one. And I'm going to have more preaching time this morning than I will tonight. It's as simple as that. So we'll talk about the, the, the everlasting father title of Christ tonight in our evening service. But Prince of Peace turned out to be unpacked with so much truth and so much implication for all of us that I've placed it in the morning message. We're going to talk about the Prince of Peace this morning. 
Now, this is uh, the most familiar title of Jesus in terms of the Christmas context, isn't it? We're all familiar with it. We see it on Christmas cards. We've sing, we, we sing it in Christmas carols. We already did this morning. And yet, even though it's the most familiar of his names in, in this prophecy as it relates to the Christmas season, it is the least understood. Now, I like the others, it's bigger and broader than you might think. And I want to take you out of us, out of the sentimental thoughts about him pretty quickly into some great and sweeping understandings about him. To do that, I'm going to do two things as I often do, two main elements to the message. I'm going to answer two questions. What does it really mean when the Bible calls him the Prince of Peace? Let's, we'll break that open together. And then secondly, what kind of peace will he really bring? Did he bring in his first arrival? And what kind of peace will he bring in his second arrival? Remember, Advent, over the centuries of church history, has celebrated not just the first arrival of Jesus, but it anticipates his second coming. Both of these are in this passage. Isaiah speaks in this passage of the two arrivals very clearly. So first of all, let's go to the first question. What does Prince of Peace really mean? You've heard about it. You've sung about it. You've, you've uh, seen it on a Christmas card or two, if you still get those. So I want you to take, since you're, however many years you've been a, in, a, in a Christian world, 10, 15, 20, 30, 80, take a silent minute. Don't answer out loud, but... If I were to ask you, can you clearly answer what it means when we say Jesus is the Prince of Peace, what, do you, what to you does it really mean? And I, I bet you, you'll find yourself stumbling over an answer because we've sung about it, we've written about it, we've watched movies about it, we've thrown the, we've thrown the, thrown the phrase around for decades of Christmases, but what does that really mean? Is it simply a poetic turn of phrase? That's what a lot of people think it is. Well, God never turns a phrase in his word. Every word is spirit-inspired, God-breathed, as the Bible says. No, each of these titles is very specific and has, has a, a volume of truth in it. So Prince of Peace was not just a nice turn of phrase that Isaiah, writing in a poetic moment, threw into the text. This has very deep meaning. Now, to go into it, we're going to go into a little bit of what the Hebrew meant that Isaiah wrote some centuries ago. Prince of Peace. In Hebrew, Sar Shalom. You're familiar with the second, Shalom, Sar, Prince. Not so much. Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace. So let's break those out as we answer the question, what does Prince of Peace really mean? So I'm going to break these out. Stick with me. Because I'll really, at the, at the end, summarize it with a phrase. So Prince, Sar, S-A-R in English. So when we get to this point, we're at a loss as Westerners and as moderns because there aren't that many princes banging around in real life. Are there? Our understanding of a prince, though, we're, we're in a, we're in a, a federally governed uh, de democratic society. We have been for a couple centuries. Our history doesn't come from the reign of, of kings and princes, that we left that across the pond, as they say. We're an entirely democratic, individually directed nation. We don't understand princes and kings. 
It comes from a different time and a different context. The closest we get to the idea of a prince is what you probably had to sit through when you were babysitting your grandkids, like I did the other day with my wife for hours and hours and hours. Christmas, you know what? I think my kids, it, it took about an hour to Christmas shop and then about eight hours to Christmas fool around, you know, you know at the mall and doing the restaurants and maybe, I'm, I'm just, I'm emoting. I'm sorry. But as we're babysitting the kids, you know, you're watching the endless, endless loops of all the kids' videos and all of that, and a lot of them have princes in them. But they're fairy tale princes. Is that what this is talking about? That's the only image we have. No, we're not talking about a fairy tale prince. Then we think back to our history and we think about what happens across in England where they actually still have princes and we watch the latest antics of, of, of Prince Harry and his, and, his, and his princess and all of this and we think, is that what we're talking about? Not, not a fairy tale title, but an inherited title, like a celebrity prince. How do you get to be a prince in our modern society? You're born a celebrity. So is that what this is talking about? No, in Jewish culture and in the societies of those eras, a prince was a warrior. He became a prince by who he conquered. He wasn't born into it necessarily. A prince was, a, the prince, the word Hebrew in sar, sar in English and in Hebrew, that's how we sound it out. It was a warrior's title that was earned by action. Stick with, stick with me on this. It, a couple of, over, over the last week, one says, Prince Sar in the Hebrew meant a leader, a commander, a captain, a chief, a ruler. It was used 381 times in the Old Testament to describe people that way. So they were real commanders, real captains, real military leaders is what it amounts to. Another said this, the prince that is referred to here is a prince who will in person completely subdue every opposing foe, banish every disturbing element, and thus bring peace to his people and to the nations, end of quote. In other words, when we're talking here about Jesus as a prince, we're talking about a conquering power, a conquering ruler, a conquering commander, a conquering warrior, someone who does something to evil. He subdues it. He conquers it. Now hold that thought. If that's what this prince is, he's not a fairy tale prince. He's not a celebrity prince. He is a warrior prince who becomes a prince by what he conquers. Then look at the next word. He's a prince who brings peace. Now shalom is the word there. And all of us are pretty much familiar with shalom. We've heard that a lot. It's the standard word for peace. But don't misidentify that one either, because as, as Americans in an individualized, comfortable culture, we have become therapized, they say. That means that we believe emotions are the greatest guide in reality. And feeling emotionally content is the greatest goal in life. And so when we think about peace, don't we think about... Uh, the absence of anxiety, the absence of troubling thoughts, the absence of anything that would make us feel uneasy. When we think of peace, we think about that. Sorry, wrong again. Hebrew culture, that's not what they thought about. They thought about peace in a different way. They thought about peace as meaning the absence of conflict. Another authority I looked at in a word study, Shalom conveyed a range of meanings, including being safe 
or at rest in the absence of conflict. And as much as you know about the history of Israel, of course that's why the word would be used, because they were under conflict all of their existence, as they are today. So shalom to the Jews, shalom to the people to whom Isaiah was writing and of whom he was, when they thought about peace, it meant to be at rest in the absence of conflict. Now, if you put those two together, Isaiah was saying someone is going to be coming who by his conquering power will bring you peace in the absence of conflict. You put them together, I'll just give you a three-word phrase. You may see it on the screen behind me. Peace through power. Peace through power. That's what this Prince of Peace would really do. He would conquer the evil that threatens people, and he would bring them to be at peace through the presence of his power. So that's the answer to the question, what is this peace really all about. Now, secondly, and here's the body of my message now, what kind of peace will he really bring? If he comes a conquering and he defeats evil, how is he going to do that? I stop here and, and I mention something that has given the critics of Christianity a lot of firepower, and that is this text when we talk about the Prince of Peace. Because they attack Christians at this time of year for holding on to the sentiment that Jesus is the Prince of Peace by simply saying, really, I don't see any. And again, that's happening this year. People look at Christians and say they've got a saccharine, sentimental, unserious, imaginary, emotional faith. They talk about a prince of peace, but when you take a look at the world around us, he hasn't shown up. Now, is there some basis for that? Is there some, some reasoning for that? Well, yeah. Yes, there is. Just a few weeks ago, we celebrated, or we, we recognize as the better, better word, Veterans Day. We did it on this platform. Veterans Day is on November 11th. It's on the 11th day, and, and uh, in terms of the time in which it, it was, was first announced, it was announced on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, November 11th, 1918. Why did that, uh, how, what was occurring at that moment? That was known as Armistice Day. It was the moment at which millions around the world recognized the official ending of World War I. And so they chose to, to mark that on a day that numerically would be hard to forget. The 11th month, the 11th day of the 11th month, and at the 11th hour, they recognized it, the very first Armistice Day. It became known as Veterans Day in 1954 through a declaration of the American government. But, but I bring you back to that to say that 100 years ago, the world made a special day to honor the ending of the First World War. With all, that's right. 
You see, the world back then was caught up in, in what was known as secular humanism, the hope and the belief that mankind could perfect himself. And through education and, and the, the power of government, he could banish evil, he could create his own peace. And getting through World War I certainly would have taught us all the lessons we needed to know about how never to go to war like that again. And so they celebrated our Armistice Day on November 11th, 1918, the end of the war to end all wars and the world truly believed that they had figured out how to cooperate cooperate as a league of nations so that the and in 1939 and 1941 what happened again world war ii and the hope of so many people collapsed because they believed that man had the ability to create lasting peace. Well, the Second World War and the Cold War and everything else that's happened since then have destroyed that fantasy. In fact, this year, things are looking bleaker than ever. I, I read a report from a publication called The Hill, which is a kind of a professional political journal that, that covers goings-on in Congress. This is what I read yesterday. The article was entitled, The What Ifs of 2024. It began this way, quote, raise your hand if you're dreading 2024. That would be me politically. Keep it up if you believe it will be more traumatic than 2023. What a cheery way to begin an article. <laughs> I read on and it said, the, the, the what ifs of 2024 include the most uncertain and chaotic presidential election in adult memory. What if that election results in a serious breaking of our political system? What if war explodes not on one front, but three? Somewhere in Eastern Europe involving multiple countries, somewhere in the Middle East as it expands across the axis of conflict there and in the Taiwan Strait, if the timing is right for the aggressor nation, China. And what if, in the midst of all these other events, a chaotic election result, an exploding of war on three fronts, the prediction comes true that this would be the ripest year on record for a terror attack within the borders of the United States. The what ifs of 2024. Oh yes, the critics are right when they say, Prince of Peace, has he really arrived? I think you would have to say that there is more there is more international distress and, and the manifestation of more human depravity this past year than you can you can gather in, in many years. And potentiality for the next is growing even more darkly. So how can Christians say, well, he's the prince of peace. Isaiah said he's coming. And Christians say he's come. Well, I would answer that by saying that Sar Shalom, the prince of peace, Jesus the Messiah, is the one whose victory will bring peace and his rule will bring peace, which is the absence of conflict. And I would tell you that he is going to bring to peace in two ways and at two times. The first, of all, first way is at his birth, spiritual peace to every man and woman that ever wanted it. And then at his second coming, he is going to establish his kingdom on the earth forever, and then he will deal with international and human conflict, and he'll bring total and everlasting peace when he returns the second time. 
You've got to understand the story arc of the person of Jesus Christ. If you're a critic of his, criticize the whole Christ. There are two times in which he is, in, in which his advent is celebrated, in which the candles remind us two comings. He came to a cradle to head to a cross to redeem a people. And ever since that time, men and women have been turning in faith to this marvelous Savior and what has flooded into their lives in that. But oh, this world is going to do everything that the news reports fear it will, plummet into international distress and human depravity in deeper and greater ways according to the plan of God. And one day, (coughs) Jesus Christ, according to the plan of God, will return and he will deal with that too. Then he'll be coming for a crown. And he will subdue the planet and he'll bring everlasting peace. Isaiah, the child is born and was born that Christmas night. A son was given, the eternal son, to go to a cross and pay an eternal price. But the government is not yet on his shoulder. He says, it shall be. And of the increase of his government, verse 7, and of peace there will be no end when he finally comes back. But you've got to understand the two tenses of all of this. So if that's the case, I'm going to teach you the answer to the question, what kind of peace will he really bring? He brings personal peace, and then he will bring planetary peace. Personal peace, how's that going to happen? Here's the first, and there's four things. He brings peace to lost souls. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. He is Shar Sar Shalom. And I have met him as my Sar Shalom. And he, he conquered the sin and the conflicts in my life. He conquered the devil's death sentence on my life. And he has brought me peace. How about you? Has that happened for you? He brings peace to lost souls. So the great point of Isaiah's promise and of his first coming was that Jesus Christ would come and bring spiritual peace. My peace I give unto you, the Lord Jesus said. Now, in John 14, 27, he said, in this world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And then he said in John 14, 27, my peace I give unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled. The word peace there, of course, is, is, is in the Greek language in which the, Old Te- the New Testament, rather, was given to us. That's a different word than shalom. Irene meant unity. It meant the absence of conflict, so it's similar to shalom. One author said it's, it represents the spiritual harmony brought about by an individual's restoration with God, end of quote. That's true. When I came and I met the Prince of Peace, my conflict with God was solved. My alienation with God was bridged. That's what it means to become a believer. See, the book of Romans says that in my sinful state, I was an enemy of God. Romans 5.10. No doubt about it. In fact, I knew I was. Some people don't know. I did. But God demonstrates his own love toward us that in the while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. That news was brought to me and, and the Spirit of God applied it to my life. 
And because of Christ's sacrifice, I was restored to a relationship of peace with God. So that one of the verses that I would memorize early in my new life with Christ was, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. Am I at peace with God? Thank, thanks to his wonderful and holy name, I am. So he brings peace to lost souls. You see, Christmas is about how that whole great process of bringing spiritual peace to lost people was moved into motion in history. One author put it this way, in the days of Adam and Eve, peace was lost. As soon as they ate the forbidden fruit and realized their nakedness, they started blaming each other and introduced conflict to God's peaceful planet. Think about that. Sadly, all of their descendants, including us, have followed their bad example. We blame others for our own bad choices, become angry when no one will accept the guilt. Blaming others for our unhappiness breaks apart families, churches, communities, and nations. We can't make peace because we're preoccupied with placing the blame. Well, Christmas is the season of peace. The Old Testament tells the story of how God set the stage to introduce the Prince of Peace. Jesus came to break the cycle of sin and blame by making peace for us with God. God through the blood of his cross, Colossians 1.20. Instead of blaming us for all the trouble we cause, he bore the blame for all of us, having made peace through the blood of his cross. That is to say, he paid the price for man's reconciliation to God. So important. With the human race alienated from a holy God, not at peace with God, Jesus Christ established an honorable peace by his birth, life, and death. And his mighty redemptive work made a peace available which the world cannot give or take away. Have you entered into this experience of peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? End quote. Absolutely. That's the great question of the hour. So this is Christmas. The Prince of Peace has come. He came into history from eternity. He went all the way to that cross and purchased your peace. Do you have it with him? He made peace possible between you and the God with whom you were at war. Did Jesus really come and did he bring peace? Oh, you better believe he did. But it's a peace that only occurs when the gospel settles over our hearts. The story is told of a woman who was dying, and a caring friend came, friend came to her bedside and said, do you know that you're dying? And the woman lying there said, yes. And the caring friend said, have you made peace with God? And the woman said, no, and was silent. Her friend was a little perplexed that nothing more was said. And she, she, she asked again, did, did you hear what I said? Do you know you're dying? And the woman in the bed said, yes. And her friend said, well, have you made peace with God? And she said, no. But then she said, I'm resting in the peace that Jesus made with God for me. <laughs> it's the gospel, friend. He's bought peace for you. So he brings peace to lost souls. Salvation is the question that Isaiah was breaching here. Is he your prince of peace as your savior? Second thing I'd note is he brings peace to believers' hearts. Once you come to know him, you begin to live into your inheritance. 
the inheritance of peace day to day, conflict to conflict, disappointment to disappointment, hard year to hard year. He bought some peace for you that you can walk in as a way of life. Somebody put it this way, when Jesus was on the cross, he made a will and testament, and he settled his estate ahead of time. Jesus gave his mother to John the Apostle. You remember that? Care for her to John on the cross. Jesus gave his spirit to God the Father. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, he said. And Jesus gave his body de facto to Joseph of Arimathea. He left the body there for Joseph to place into that promised tomb. But before that day started, Jesus had already given his peace to you, the writer says. For Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives to give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He said that to the disciples who had come to believe that he was Messiah. And you know, that's our inheritance as believers. When you come to know him, your, your, your battle is done with God. The conflict is over. The enemy uh, that you were with God, you've been defeated and you're now at peace with God. He's made peace for you. But now you have an inheritance of daily peace through all your battles, through the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's why Galatians 5, says, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, it's your right as a Christian now. In Philippians 4, it says that no matter what you face that's beyond you, God can give you a peace that's beyond understanding. I have under, no understanding how he does it, but I've seen him do it hundreds and hundreds of times in my battles. It's part of my inheritance now since I know Sar Shalom. I know the Prince of Peace. I can expect peace in my battles it's a mystery. Jesus said, not as the world gives do I give unto you. If you're seeking peace the world's way as a Christian, that's not where you're going to find it. You're going to find it in the mystery of who he is and how he's caring for you and in the, in the wonderful domain of faith. But it's your inheritance. And as that news report that I read describes, the world's going to get darker this year, and as it darkens, your, pay, your, your peace can, can lay hold of your heart one of the most precious verses to me about the darkening days ahead is Jesus said, he said, in the world you shall have tribulation, shall have absolute certainty, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. In me you will have peace. I don't know about your life, sometimes I believe it can out trouble God's peace, but I just linger with God a little longer and his peace becomes sufficient. Sometimes I fear that in the future, the future will, will cause me to be in situations where I outsuffer God's peace, but I know that's not possible either. He's good for it. So the Prince of Peace brings peace to lost souls and he brings peace to believers' hearts, all because he came on that Christmas morning. He brought personal peace at his first coming, but remember I said when I began, He's going to bring planetary peace at his second coming. Yeah, the world is falling apart right now, but he's coming back. And he'll bring planetary peace then. That's why Isaiah said, oh, one day the government will be upon his shoulders. Isaiah 9 spans history. 
First time he came, through a cradle to a cross to defeat sin's power over lost people. The second time, he's coming for a crown and for a kingdom. And he's going to demolish evil. Listen to this, once and forever. He defeated sin at the cross. He will demolish the very presence and power of evil on the planet forever. And he'll do it when he comes back. He's not done. Planetary peace, how's he going to do that? Well, two ways. He'll bring planetary peace to a defiant world. I don't know if you've noticed, but this is hijacked real estate, biblically. 1 John 5, 19 says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Cosmos is the Greek. The entire world system, every aspect of it, physical, emotional, mental, intellectual, and certainly spiritual lies in his power. It has been given over to him under the sovereign plan of God. And all the inhabitants thereof are filled with wickedness. Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Their feet are swift, swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If you've ever wondered why the world can get to be the way it is, look at the, lo- look at the hearts of those who inhabit it, bar none. But in the time of God's own choosing, he has already promised that Sar Shalom, the conquering prince of peace, will return at a time yet future, and he's going to take this planet back. Psalm 2. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. Little words mean a lot in my Bible. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Oh, he's coming back. And he will take control of evil and destroy it. Revelation 19 tells us of what it will look like in that hour when he returns. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Is he that today? Not quite. He's allowed evil to run for his own sovereign purposes. He's allowed the nations to rise for his own sovereign purposes. He's allowed Satan to to wreak havoc for his own sovereign purposes. And it will all move for his great glory until at a time of the father's choosing, he, he looks at the son and he says, now you go be the king of all these kings. Now you go and take possession as the Lord of all the lords. You go and demonstrate you are the prince of peace on this planet. And all of heaven looks forward to that time in Revelation. They're reading an anthem that they will call out with loud voices, Revelation eleven fifteen. the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. That's why in Isaiah says he will retake the planet and the government will be on his shoulders. You see, the plan of God for the ages is, is one we wouldn't have imagined. It's too hard, to, and it would take far too much time to go into, but what Isaiah is promising here is that when Jesus comes back, he's going to create something called the millennial age of peace. 
and then the government will be his. He will rule a partially renewed heaven and earth from Jerusalem. It's an amazing story. You can read read about it in virtually all the Old Testament prophets. A lot will have to happen between now and then. The church, all the genuine believers that have come to peace with God through his first coming, they're going to go to meet the Lord in the air. It's an event called the rapture of the church. I think it's the next great event in biblical history. I'm waiting for it. I'd rather it would end this message rather than me. But when he comes and takes us, then a flow of events will begin to unfold that have been prophesied for thousands of years in which the world will run into mindless evil. The Holy Spirit through the presence of the church have been taken away. A great time known as the tribulation will occur and the emergence of the Antichrist will occur and there'll be seven years of tyranny and terror concluding with a great conflict against God's people, Israel, who will still be on earth at that time, but who will be turning to Messiah by that time and trusting Christ. And the hatred of the Antichrist in the world will rotate against Israel in ways we can't imagine. And the the armies of the world will be massed against Jerusalem under the power of the Antichrist to eliminate his people and to eliminate all who call on the name of Jesus. And just when it looks darkest... Revelation 19 says, he will come. And the breath of his mouth will destroy all of his enemies. And he'll, he'll begin a reign on the earth known as the millennium. He'll judge the nations. And you and I will reign with him. Partially renewed heaven and earth. Jerusalem again, the focal point of all history. Don't think that God is finished with Israel. In certain ways, he's just started. They'll be restored. They'll turn to him as Messiah and their king. And all the nations of the world will thrive under the rulership of the Lord Jesus, the full Prince of Peace. All the prophets have predicted this. They will not learn war anymore, and the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Sadly, to demonstrate the fullness of wickedness at the very end of that thousand years, the devil will be let loose from his abyss and he will lead one final worldwide rebellion, but it won't last long. And Jesus will destroy him with the power of his word. Satan will be sentenced forever to the lake of fire. All men and women who have rejected Christ will be raised and judged. And then the heavens and the earth will be made brand new. And after that thousand years, the eternal state will begin to roll. And God, the scripture says, will be all in all. And peace will be eternal. And whom will we adore in the midst of it? The Lamb of God, Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he'll bring peace, planetary peace to a defiant world, and he'll bring permanent peace to a wandering Israel. And all of history will be tied together in a way that we'll all look back on and say, Glory to God. Do you think the world's flying apart today? Only under God's sovereign hands. Thus far and no farther, he says, it will go. And one day the Prince of Peace will come again. And everything we see is chaotic. We'll see it was part of his plan. The eternal plan of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. You say, wow, (laughs) 
real personal peace, actual planetary peace, all of that wrapped up in a Christmas morning. Yeah. That's why the text that I asked Paul to read earlier is so beautiful. You might say, well, pastor, which of those two peace bringings of peace is the most awesome, personal peace or planetary peace? I'd actually say the first one because the conflict is greater. God could end human conflict at any time, but he had to deal, deal, deal with eternal conflict at the cross. And so in Luke chapter 2, there really was a greatness to the good news when the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Did you know you were included in that? He was speaking about Israel primarily, but for all who would come to Jesus. You and I were there. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Amen. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Do you know that was the largest appearance of angels on the planet in history? Look back through your Bible. Angels appeared in ones and twos. And even that would take your breath away. Here, the only word that was used as murion in the Greek, it was the, it was the Greek word that expressed the largest number possible in the Greek mind. It said murion and murion. I mean, just, there was no way to capture the number. And then look what they said. Glory to God in the highest. What's that talking about? In heaven's throne room. Because he has sent the Son. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The angels were filling the horizon, praising God. And in heaven, there were billions more surrounding the throne saying, the great plan of rescue and the the coming of the Son of Peace has begun. There was no greater moment in human history than that one. And they were there to hear that the Prince of Peace was coming. The disaster of human history was going to be solved. The lostness of men and women was going to be breached. The terrible plan and work of the enemy was going, the glory of God was going to be at the highest point ever. The day the Prince of Peace was born. (laughs) So what's in a name? If that name is Joe Persh, not very much. But if the name is Yeshua, Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace, what's in that name? Everything.